Alright, so before we start this meetup, I want to do a few things that we don't normally do. I'm going to call out Fiddler AI because they are an incredible support to the MLOps community. And I think it is worth mentioning that they have sponsored the community. And with that leap of faith, it helps the community grow. It helps the community be what it is. So I want to thank them from the bottom of my heart. They are one of the first sponsors and they're taking the chance on us. So that being said, let's get into this talk with Krishna. It was an incredible deep dive on explainability and why we need it, what it is, all of that responsibility when it comes to machine learning. Here we go. And then there is another thing that is pretty cool about today's meetup, which is Krishna Shed. He is going to give away some Fiddler swag to some of the best questions that are asked throughout the meetup. So if you have any questions today, throw them in the chat and you're going to enter yourself into the raffle to win some swag. That's not a bad deal if you... If you're, I might ask some questions too, because I want some Fiddler swag. So, <laughs> that's some kidding. good swag there. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Just, uh, just kidding. Asking questions is my job. That's what I'll be doing this whole time. So, today, in case you missed it, we are here to talk about how explainable AI is critical to building responsible AI. And let's start first before we jump ahead with any of that. Let's start with you, Krishna. I know that you have a long history in this explainable AI world. You were one of the people that decided to put at Facebook, why am I seeing this? And then later that trend caught on. We can see it in most large platforms. You have some kind of explainability that tells you why you're seeing something when there is machine learning involved. And you also have gone off and you said, well, you know what? I like that idea so much. I want to start my own company <laughs> around that. And that is Fiddler is doing monitoring solutions and they're also doing explainability. And so that's absolutely incredible. But before we jump into any of that and the talk theme and all that we came here to talk about today, can you just give us some background on yourself? How did you get into machine learning? How did you even get into tech? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Dimitrios. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks everyone for joining the call. And first up, it's our pleasure to be part of MLOps community. It's a, it's a rapidly growing community. So feel free to join and very super interesting questions and people from coming from various different um, use cases and operationalizing ML. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm like an engineer by background. I, I came to the States in 2001 to do my grad school from India. And after that, I, I landed my first job at Microsoft, uh, working as a software engineer at Bing, which is actually where I got exposed to machine learning. Um, so Bing was building this, um, search engine to compete with Google. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to invest in, you know, comp like machine learning algorithms, especially neural networks. Uh, back in the day, this is like, you know, early 2000s where they had a, you know, very good like set of Microsoft researchers, you know, at the time that, you know, we wanted to, we were working with them to kind of productize 
um, neural networks. I mean, single layer neural networks, two layer neural networks, not very complex neural networks, but still, you know, quite complex to the state of the art, you yeah, know, search quality algorithms at the time. So I remember at the time when we were, when we deployed our first neural net, I remember the, my, like our developer managers just basically expressed this thing where, oh, we just lost control over such quality algorithm. Because until that point, we had a very simple configuration file with like weight specified for each parameter and anyone could just see like how the search ranking algorithm would work, right? But the moment we switched it to a simple two-layer network, we ju it just became a black box. So the very first explainability tool was on, it wasn't even called explainability, uh, was a debugging tool that I and F another developer uh, built. It was called Query Pro. Wow. Uh, and I think it's one of the those query debugging tools that I think Bing still uses. Mm. It basically helps you to kind of find out why you are seeing a particular you know search result for a Bing search quality. So my foray into explainability started kind of unknowingly way back almost 15 years ago. And ever since, you know, I've worked, I've been working in tech, I've, I've worked in, you know, various different parts of like Bing, like, you know, and, and the nice thing about working on a search engine is you work in like, like kind of a cross spectrum of like distributed systems, algorithms, and, you know, scalability, you get exposed to a lot of, you know, concepts there. After that, you know, I came to the Bay Area, worked in a bunch of, you know, social media companies like Twitter, Pinterest, and Facebook, where you're obviously exposed to a lot of, you know, large scale data, analytics of it, and and sort of, you know, how do you make sense of that data? And it is at Facebook where I kind of, you know, life came full circle where, you know, Facebook, were, uh, I joined Facebook around 2016. And, uh, you know, we, at the time, by the time Facebook had invested quite a bit in machine learning, we had we had the FB learner system that people were using to, you know, create machine learning models. It was oh, yeah. like kind of our machine learning platform. And uh, Newsfeed, uh, which is the team that I was in, was was a heavy consumer of it. And, and so we would build lots and lots of machine learning models. and and very complex ones, you know, sparse neural networks, booster trees, you know. Um, and and at the time, you know, we didn't, we kind of uh, sort of uh, lost this ability to diagnose uh, these questions that would come from, you know, publishers or internal employees. And especially after the whole, you know, 2016 elections and all of the other things that came after, you know, Facebook, you know, we felt that we, 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 needed, we needed to increase more transparency among our algorithms, first internally, especially, and also for external users. So that's kind of where I, we started uh, working on. So I was leading a team uh, called Feed Ranking Platform, which is providing the infrastructure for the ranking engineers in Newsfeed. And, and so part of our you know, responsibility was to create toolkits to debug and diagnose machine learning models and, and help them ex and explain them to a wide variety of stakeholders, starting with developers first. And we would have questions, we would get questions all the way even from Zuckerberg sometimes, you know, and why am I seeing this story in my feed? Or, right. you know, why is this story going viral? And, 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 and previously before these tools, it would take a long time for developers to do this debugging exercise, right? And it could be like, you know, there could be a number of problems that could be going on. It could be, you know, a bad model got rolled out, you know, Facebook had this continuous machine learning update process and, or it could be that, you know, uh, someone was in an experiment that they were not supposed to be, right? Like, and so there's A-B testing of models happening, or it could be some bad data pipeline that sent bad features. So, and so a lot of these things, you know, helped us, you know, improve the infrastructure, improve like the sort of the, the operations of it. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what I felt at the time, you know, to kind of just to continue your, your question is sort of, you know, that's when I, I felt that you know a lot of work in machine learning to that point was 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 happening more around, you know, helping data scientists create better models like you know, 
accurate models, automated machine learning platforms were coming out. You know, SageMaker just launched around that time. And, and but we felt that no one was actually looking into this aspect of, you know, monitoring and debuggability of machine learning models. And that's kind of what prompted us to start the company. That's great, man. And there is something that you said there at the beginning of your journey that I think is fascinating, especially Thanks. because you were doing it in the early 2000s, you said? Correct. Yeah, it was like 2005-ish, which means we launched a two-layer network and <laughs> we wow. had to build Query Probe. <laughs> a debugging and, well, tool. I mean, you said that this is what's incredible to me is that everything was fine when you were doing it <laughs> behind the scenes, but then when you put it out into the wild, it was like, whoa, we just lost our baby. Correct. It's no longer under our control. Correct. Especially, especially I, for a leadership part, right? Where you can just see, hey, like, you know, how, what's, which feature is contributing how much. So they can, they can, you have, you want to have that assurance, you know, how, how, how is the system working, even if it's working fine or even if it's not working fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible to think about. So let's move on to explainability and responsibility. I know there are, they are hot topics right now, mm. especially, I think, even more because the social dilemma came out and more people are starting to focus on the governance of machine learning and also the explainability and the responsibility of all of this. So I think we should probably start just by talking about what is explainability besides mm. you saying, okay, if I'm a consumer of a newsfeed, I can just click a button and know mm. why I saw some article, right? What else is explainability? Can you break that down for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think fundamentally, if you think about, uh, if you take a step back, uh, the new software artifact that is getting operationalized um, today is the machine learning model. You know, uh, you know, for example, you know, back in the day, you know, most of the software used to be, you know, like just like, you know, code that you write and you can actually see what you've written. You can debug it line by line and you can actually understand it uh, and, and by spending time at it, right? But the new software artifact that is going into production is this probabilistic entity or a stochastic entity called the machine learning model. And there are a few aspects of it that, uh, that actually make it interesting. One is it's a black box. Even a simple logistic regression model, it's, it's, it's not something that you can open up the code and read all the rules, right? Like even if it's, even if it's a decision tree, you cannot see you know, why, what rules got invoked when a particular prediction was made. So first of all, it's a black box entity that you cannot actually open up and see. Secondly, because it's a stochastic entity, its behavior changes based on the data it's receiving, right? So you may have trained it with certain set of data, and when you actually, you know, actually operationalize it, you may it may be getting you know different types of you know data sets. So therefore, its predictions can be, you know, something that you you may not like you may not be able to guess, you know, you may, they can be across a bunch of, you know, they, they can be uh, spread across a bunch of range. So, so therefore these two things of not like, I wouldn't call it non-deterministic, but kind of, you know, it's, it, it's not theoretically not deterministic because it has a finite range, but it's still kind of non-deterministic from a human point of view, mm -hmm. the way it behaves in production. And the fact that it is a black box, those two things make it a very hard problem and a hard, hard thing to operationalize. Now, if you operationalize it without properly testing these things, properly understanding how these models, then there is this whole quote unquote irresponsible practice of machine learning could come into picture, especially 
if your models are being used for some high stakes use cases, yeah. right? So for example, if someone is using uh, machine learning models for issuing loans, right? Yeah. Now we all know that, um, you know, like things like jobs, you know, getting a loan approved, getting a house mortgage approved, they're critical aspects of, you know, human lives in society, right? You know, it can be life-changing and if you get that particular job or it can, if you can get like, you know, that loan sanction or whatever clinical diagnosis and all. So for those high stakes use totally. cases, machine learning models are being applied because, you know, you have a lot of data uh, collected and you have a lot more information about the users and you want to, uh, you know, provide the more more accurate, I mean, in a good spirit only. And so essentially you want to provide more accurate ex more experience to the customer and you can actually simplify your operations and whatnot. But if you do not actually uh, know what you're doing with these models, if you don't understand how the model is working and if you have not properly, you know, validated it, tested it, monitored it, then you cannot be, you know, saying that you have a, you know, your sort of, you know, make your your systems are making responsible decisions, right? Yeah. So, so the whole concept of responsible AI is to ensure that a, a particular set of processes are sort of implemented. It's a process framework so that you can think about, you know, when you are, you know, training and deploying machine learning models, what set of things do you need to think about, you know? So, starting from the training data set, assessing, you know, biases in training data sets and then validating machine learning models. And then once you validate them, monitoring them and being able to debug when, when people ask questions and having those capabilities will set you up for a responsible AI practice. And so that's kind of you know, how, how you define it. Within that explainability becomes a core concept because if you do not understand how the model is working, that's the fundamental part of it, right? You know, if someone asks, you know, how did you make this prediction? If you do not understand it, then uh, you can be sort of, you know, you, you really don't know how your system is working, right? And and so so that so explainability becomes the the center of it. You know, it's a, it's the it becomes a cornerstone technology to actually have in place for you to actually build responsible AI in production. And so when you're looking at the responsible AI, of course, the use case of these high stakes. Uh, machine learning models is very obvious, right? And I know, like, I think the epitome of this is the, there's a something in Florida where the judge decides how, who gets out on bail due to a machine learning model, right? That's like the epitome of a very high stakes machine right. learning model. And you want to be able to explain why it's making those decisions. Turns out it was pretty biased uh, and I think everyone's heard that story before, so we don't need to go too far into it. But what I want to know is, for those use cases that aren't as high stakes, do you mm -hmm. still feel like it is important? Right. And and how high up the food chain? Like, yep. is it just something... Because I think about the people in the community that are trying to just get a model out. Right. And then you tack on, oh yeah, you want to make sure it's explainable. You want to make sure it's responsible. I have my own personal thoughts on this. Like right. you shouldn't be putting something out unless right. you can explain and it is responsible. But right. I'd love to hear what you think about that too. Yeah, so increasingly what's, what's happening is use cases that you have never thought would have these kind of implications are emerging. So obviously we talked about, you know, the standard set of use cases, the credit underwriting, you know, and our clinical diagnosis, you know, recruiting, which directly affect, affect the human beings need to be, uh, you know, companies, you know, fin you know, need to be putting in responsible AI practice. And we have seen all the incidents, whether the Apple credit card, you know, gender bias yeah. incident or the, 
Amazon recruiting tool, you know, kind of, you know, bias incident or, you know, many, many incidents in the past, you know, that we have, you know, companies had to roll back tools or had to kind of, you know, do PR correction or kind of, you know, regulatory probes happened, you know, and whatnot, right? But if you kind of think about it, like there was this UK logistics company called Deliveroo and they got sued by an Italian court that they were actually issuing these, you know, sort of delivery orders for different people at different times, and they were actually being biased towards against a certain set of people. Now, you wouldn't think logistics as a you know in the pre, as as a company that would actually need to think about responsible AI before, right? But if you step back, you know we are actually using you know all these you know services like DoorDash, Uber, all the time. But there is an element of you know are these algorithms working in a fair manner, right? Like are these I have are these basically trying to sort of you know um, you know uh, provide um, uh, sort of uh, employment in a fair manner, give give uh, you know orders in a fair manner. So there's a whole. I mean, it's, it's once you open up it, it becomes like a can of worms, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can say the same thing about say a housing marketplace company, right? So so I think you can see that there are so many hidden biases that you can actually you know uncover even in you know in use cases where you cannot uh, they do not directly touch human beings. Now having said that. If you're just using machine learning for like, you know, something that is completely in, internal, that is like, let's say it's not touching human beings at all. It does not have any implication of it. Would you still need monitoring and explainability? I would argue that, you know, you would, if you, if your models are critical for your business, mm-hmm. right? Let's say if, you, if your model is actually critical for your business, not something that you're doing some for your own research. You don't you want to know how it's working? Don't you want to understand how how it's actually making its decisions? I think it it makes it makes you know in our experience what we believe is you can actually use these insights to make the modeling model itself better over time, right? The ultimate goal of it is one is obviously to explain it to others who are asking you questions so that you have these you know, these insights, but then also use these insights to make the model better. Right, so now we are seeing this emergence of whole model robustness and adversarial testing, the whole sort of research fields emerging where now how can you use explanations to make like the model better, right? And, uh, you know, one of the customers that we are working with is, you know, is, is basically trying to use like false positives uh, coming out of uh, their model and then using explanations for the false positives to kind of, you know, derive you know, uh, like uh, sort of synthetic training examples so that they can train, like address that false positives, oh, a segment nice. of false positives and make the model better. So there are multiple use cases of explainability, not just explaining to, you know, third party, but also to for, for our own sake to make the model better. Wait, can we dig into that use case real fast? The, so the false positive is coming out right? and then they're going back and they're training with that false positive to not have that false positive again. Correct. So I can't I can't name this customer. It's a very high-profile customer, but let's assume um, let's assume this scenario. Let's assume the simple fraud case scenario. So um, you know you have a fraud model. It's, it is detecting fraud, and it has a set of false positives. Now, first of all, you want to know when you actually are running model uh, in production or about to launch it. You want to know what are all the failure scenarios, which segments of data it's actually not going to predict as well, right? And so explainability and, and a tool like Fiddler can help you uncover, you know, which slices of the data is the model not going to, is not performing well on, on your own train and test sets. 
Now you can actually also do it in production when you're actually, you know, you can say, let's say I want to run this model and, uh, and I've observed it over a week or a last month. And I've seen, you know, these are the cases my humans have labeled. These are all false positives, right? Now, from those false positives, you as a developer in the past, what you would use, you would actually look at and detect patterns to see, okay, this is where the model is failing. You know, for example, people coming from, you know, transactions coming out of, you know, San Francisco uh, from this neighborhood are being classified as fraud or transactions coming from Nevada from this, you know, region are being classified as fraud or whatever. And you try to detect those yourself as a human and then try to go and say, do we have enough representation of those in positive examples and negative examples, you know, because they are all misclassifications and can we kind of, can we, can we kind of train the model so that they, it can actually learn from it, right? Now that process, you know, it's harder to do when you have a lot of features, when your model is very complex, yeah. when you do not know the reasons how the model is predicting, right? Imagine if you had model uh, that is actually, you know, explainability can give you attributions. So, okay, these are the reasons why uh, these transactions are classified as, you know, you know, fraud, but they're not fraud, right? And so now you can actually group those attributions. And from there, you can have these clusters of attributions, which will give you these, you know, common sets of reasons, which can then, you know, help you, you know, come back and say, okay, what's, where do I get, you know, what's the problem? Is it a feature? Do we have good features for these set of, you know, people? Or do we have enough training examples, right? Mm -hmm. Or is the model not good enough? you know, for these type of things. So we may have to train a different model architecture. Maybe we have to go for, a, instead of one single model, we have to build like an ensemble of models. So those are the things that you can actually do it. And this is very common practice in, you know, in, in like in, in companies like Facebook, you know, where we, we would basically, when we try to look at a model performance, we would look at it holistically, but also look at into into segments of it. And when we, and, and, and you can, you, the same model may not perform well across all regions. So it's very common for people to build these ensembles of models so that it can address like the weak spots within the data and then they all come together to make a decision, right? So explainability helps you kind of, you know, get these insights, you know, do this at scale instead of a human going sifting through the data and, you know, collecting patterns. Yeah, and it feels like if it is a human doing it, there's a lot more room for error. Correct. And a lot more, it's almost like bias could be introduced or theories could be introduced and then they have no basis in reality. Yeah, I mean, you have to have an expert human being. I mean, you, machine learning is part art, part science. That's the reason, right? You know, you have this, you know, machine learning, the subject matter experts who, who some of them are, you know, have this really good intuition of what would work, what not doesn't work. But what will happen is, you know, tools like, you know, explainability tools can actually, you know, provide these insights for a wide variety of people so that, you know, a lot of data scientists, a lot of developers can actually, you know, take advantage of it and then, you know, make sense of make sense of how do they, how do they address you know, model improvements and whatnot. So, so that's... Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I believe that, you know, most humans, you know, want to do the right thing, especially the developers who want to like, you know, are doing machine learning. And so there's no, like people are not purposefully gaming the system, right? But there could be, you know, you know issues where you may, you may make errors. You know, you may have not, you know, you may have not looked at the training data set. You may not looked at if it's actually having enough like samples for each type of user or each type of case. Mm -hmm. And whether that's actually bias related thing that could actually affect your, you know, kind of use case from a bias angle or in another way, it could actually just affect your model from a performance angle, yeah. right? In the fraud example, it may not be, may not be biased. It's just that it's mispredicting, uh, you know, transactions coming from two cities you know, to be like fraudulent and, and that and it's just probably a performance thing, performance improvement problem. Whereas if it's happening with like 
it's affecting like a whole gender like a whole set of population coming from a certain place you know to be like all fraud then that could that would just translate into the bias fraud it's the same thing but you know you know depending on the context it becomes like a performance issue or a bias issue so do you need this subject matter expert or a someone who is very advanced to be able to set up what the explainability tool should be looking for at first or is it something that's plug and play and it will know when it like latches onto the model right so the goal is i mean the goal for companies like us to for filter is to provide as many insights as possible so that you know we you know we can actually make like data scientists life easier right so you can actually by helping provide your debuggability to these things even you know not just the expert data scientist but also like you know more, more junior data scientists on the, on their team can also learn from these insights and make start making models much better right so that's uh, that is the goal and eventually you know right now like our platform supports you know for example you being able to like slice and dice data and explain you know parts of the data with your model but also uh, you know in the future we may be also like kind of looking at you know like kind of as i said you know recommending slices you know these slices are actually not performing well for your model Brilliant. now you and and sort of automatically providing recommendations so you can go and actually look at those pop, those slices those slices and and actually address performance issues man that is super cool i see some questions coming through in the chat so sure. there are some people who want some swag remember <laughs> if you ask a great question you are entering to win some fiddler ai swag Krishna has been kind enough to give out some swag to a select few that asked the questions. Now, let's see here. This is an awesome question from Shabi. Can we measure explainability or measure the accuracy of the explanation? Do you think that we need such a metric to rec regulate sensitive models? Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, evaluating explainability algorithms is a very hot topic in 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 research today. Um you know first of all what what are the things that you want to evaluate uh, on right you know there is you know there are many things right so for example is the one of the things that you want to care about is is the explanation high fidelity you know for example are you making up an explanation or is it actually high fidelity to what the model is actually trying to do right uh, and so that's very important um, and then is the explanation intelligible you know is it actually for me as a for, for human on can i understand it right and so so there are various ways to evaluate it uh, you know we are also you know sort of you know working on you know coming up with own metrics one of the things that um, and that is actually shining through with explainability algorithms is some of these algorithms uh, especially the ones that are coming out of the, the class of attribution based algorithms so they all come under this family of shapley value based techniques and so the nice thing about the shapley value based techniques is that they have this sound um, you know game theoretic axiomatic principles so they have you know certain axioms that you know theoretically proved by you know uh, this this sort of uh, econ economist in 1950s um, that actually help us you know for example you know so just maybe getting into a little bit of you know shapley values here so shapley values was essentially designed to uh, sort of take you know in the game theory to basically take like a, a uh you know profit of a game and split it into rewards among the players right so for example if you know let's say three people come together to start a company and the company starts making profits how do you take the profits and split them into bonuses now it's being applied the same concept is being applied for machine learning models where you know a bunch of features come together and they make a prediction 
and now you take the prediction prediction is your you know profit now you take it and split it into among uh, in the feature rewards or, or attributions so these are all called attribution based algorithms now shapley value shapley came up with this really nice axiomatic principles saying that you know if two features are actually you know identical then they would uh, then they would get symmetric shapley value they will if they're symmetric then they will get identical shapley values or if a feature is a you know as a no op then it will get a zero shapley value or all the shapley values add up to the total you know prediction and whatnot mm -hmm. so these some of these axioms you know help us you know kind of you know pro provide a solid grounding so we see that Shapley value-based techniques are actually becoming kind of almost the gold standard in terms of explainability. Right. There are a bunch of techniques that build on top of it. Uh, you know, there's integrated gradients, there is, uh, which is like an, a variant of Shapley values, kind of Shapley value technique. We have our own implementation of Shapley values using non-theory. So there's a bunch of techniques that build on top of this core concept that provide these sound principles. However, yeah, we still need to ensure that, you know, how, how, how is this metric, right? Like, what, what, how, you know, what is, is this explanation, can I trust this explanation? So today, what tools like Fiddler provide is ability to do what-if analysis so that the human can themselves assess, you know, you know, like what if, if I change it? You know, what if, if I change this feature value to this value, what would be my explanation or what would be my prediction? So therefore, by interactively playing with the model, uh, you can actually understand it much better. Um, and so, 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 so there are basically uh, sort of uh, that, uh, those, those are the experience, the user experience is kind of trying to come together to kind of make it like more trustworthy. Mm. But yeah, in the future, we would have to have these kind of metrics that, that kind of, you know, can, can quantify uh, these, the, the value of explainability. Well, that just, we can jump on the next question that's coming through, which is another great one uh, from Sandhya. Forgive me if I pronounced the name wrong, but it's it goes we can just pin this on to that because they're asking does explainable ai also entail explainable data mm -hmm. i see the point where explainability can help with getting the insights about data after the model has been trained right. but should it be handled perhaps more proactively where you unbias the data before training the model on it that's a very good question in fact um uh, one of the things that we, uh, uh, you know, we actually have the, the tool provides to our customers today is, you know, so when you're doing feature selection, uh, when you have a lot of features within your data, you can use explainability, not just after the model is created, but before it um, uh, to actually see which features are actually, you know, the most important features, which features can be pruned away. And to Sandhya's point around, you know, like preliminary investigation of feature importance and, you know, which features are coming up. Are there any, like looking at feature correlations and, you know, PDP, like partial dependency plots between features and predictions. So you can get some idea before you even go deeper into feature engineering and, and, and model building exercise. So yeah, there's definitely a valid point there. However, one should remember that explainability is always is only giving you a lens to look into the model. So even if you're explaining the data, you're looking through the model's eyes. Right, so it's not causal from a data point of view, right? So it's not like, for example, it's not going to tell you, like if, uh, for example, if a store is not going to make sales because of a, an external event like coronavirus has happened and people stopped coming to the store, right? You cannot like you, that; those things cannot be captured. So, so explainability is limited, and it's very important to understand this thing. It's essentially proving you, giving you the eyes to look through the model. And, and the model is then, model is basically, what is the model? Model is basically a learn from the data and developed a pattern from the data, right? So you're essentially looking looking through the model's eyes on the data. So that's what you're doing with explainability. So 
So there are, you know, you can stretch this thing and get into like causation and all, which is has to be, you know, sort of, you know, a little bit careful you have to, before you do that. Uh, so it's still, you know, you're, you're still going through the model size to understand the data. Man, I love this shit. This is so <laughs> good because this needs to be happening, right? Like these questions need to be coming up. And I argue for everyone being able to explain what is their model doing and why and all of that. Uh, and I'm glad to see that others are asking questions. Maybe it's just because we're giving out some swag, but I think there's some genuine interest here because there's some incredible questions. We've got one from Deepesh who's asking, as a data scientist, there are situations when the prediction output is expected to support a business decision taken by senior executives. Uh-oh. In that case, when the explainable model gives out a prediction that doesn't align with the stakeholders' expectations, how should one navigate through this tricky situation? <laughs> that's where explainability becomes your friend, uh, Deepak. So because, uh, you know, that's actually that the hippo decision-making, the highest paid person, you know, uh, in, in the office, right? Hippo, it's called hippo decision-making. So, and so that exists in many industries. It, and so, um, and, and it's, yeah, uh, so... So when when your model's decision model prediction does not match with with this you know senior leadership's decision, you can then go and explain here is why that is the case because they generally would not naturally ask you know, hey like I don't think my intuition tells me this or my experience tells me this right, but you can actually open up like the model and look at like tell them you know and they can actually play with themselves. For example, let's take this simple scenario. So let's say I'm a very experienced underwriting officer in a bank. I'm like 20 years of experience underwriting loans. I know what makes a good loan, what makes a bad loan. Now, suddenly a new loan comes in and it's marked as, you know, very high risk. And I think like, no, it doesn't look like high risk. I have approved these type of loans in the past. You know, why is the model saying it's high risk? Now, if you can actually explain that, you know, saying that, hey, the reason why is because this person's, you know, loan amount is so-and-so or this person's, you know, FICO score is so-and-so or, you know, his previous debt is so-and-so and whatnot. But... And then also provide more examples, you know, say, hey, these were all the other loans that look like these loans that we actually denied in the past and they were actually bad loans or uh, or we actually approved them, but they turned out to be bad loans or where they can, you can provide some ways for the person to actually, you know, you know, you know change like variables and, and make it make sense of their own uh, self. And so this obviously becomes like a collaborative exercise. Now, in some cases, the model could be wrong, right? And this is where explainability becomes important because, you know, when you are designing the model, if you have not selected the right data set and whatnot, and, and the subject matter expert can actually be right, and they might be able to guide the model building process. Um, in cases where the model is right, then they can actually correct their own intu in kind of intuitions. So it brings both parties together, and, and that's the beauty of it. And by opening up this black box, you actually not just like have like the data scientist telling that this is what the model is doing. And in the past, that used to be the case, right? In the past, when, when I worked with data scientists, when I would ask, you know, what, what's this prediction? And they would be like, I don't know, the model said so, right? <laughs> so so that that both like kind of, you know, takes away the credit, right? Uh, and, and we understand as an engineer, we understand, yeah, it's actually hard to understand, ask, answer that question. But, you know, but, but having that opportunity to expose that insight, you know, brings multiple parties together. We can actually have a dialogue and have a consensus to move forward. Great answer. And this is a bit of a tangent, but I know that when we as humans, they did a study on us, when we see something that comes from a computer or a machine, we are much more likely to believe that it is true. 
And so you get into these situations like, oh, well, the model said it was this. Right. And so you just take it for granted without actually right. digging behind and saying, is it right? I mean, I'm sure the people on this call, they don't just take everything with uh, without a grain of salt. But for the majority of people, we're used to calculators, putting in numbers and spitting out an answer. And right. it is the right answer always, you know? And if it's the wrong answer, it's because of something that we did. It's not the other way around where the machine learning model is just doing something and then we get an answer and we're not sure if it's right. So that's a, a side note. I've got more questions rolling in here. There's one from Sherry asking, how do you differentiate explainability from interpretability and how important is each in what context? Yeah, so I mean, these are all obviously industry terminology. Right now, the kind of uh, the definition that is becoming more popular is, I can at least talk think about it, interpretability as interpretable machine learning algorithm. If the model itself is interpretable, for example, let's say, you know, you can, one can argue that a decision tree is interpretable. If I can visualize the decision tree, I can see, you know, which path, you know, you know, a prediction is taking, you know, I can actually understand. I don't need a separate explainer for it, right? You know, same thing, you know, a linear model could be interpretable because I have the, you know, the weights and coefficients, so I can actually have interpretable. So you have this axis of interpretability where, you know, the model itself is interpretable, you know, maybe in the case of a linear model, say, or, or a decision tree to like, you know, completely black box where I can, I cannot like you know interpret a neural network. Explainability is more around kind of you know taking a model and then explaining it you know as mostly kind of you know in the context of a post hoc explanation, right? So in the case in this case the model itself is not you know interpretable um, and and you're trying to explain it to a, 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 a sort of a, a sort of a third party or for yourself. And so that's kind of how I differentiate it. So you have interpretable algorithms. You know, you have the you know you know all the way from linear models, decision trees, GAMs. You know, which are you know getting getting very popularized. Then all the way to like you know like non-interpretable algorithms like neural networks. But then you have explainability algorithms, which are taking any of these models and trying to explain it in a way. So kind of we talked about Shapley values, Lime, and you know integrated gradients, and many other algorithms that are coming up. That's kind of how I differentiate it. Okay, so there's another one from Fatime, and they're asking, how useful do you think causal ML can be to the explainable AI agenda? Yeah, so I think, I think, I mean, a lot of, you know, uh, so I'm not an expert in ca causal machine learning. So from what I understand, obviously, if um, like, you know, followed Judy Apple and, you know, I, mean, I sort of, you know, read the, you know, the, whole, the, the Holy Grail, the book of why and all. So, I think, you know, a causal ML is all about, you know, you you sort of, you know, trying to, so as a human, providing a lot of structured information uh, to the model, you know, kind of, you know, the, the sort of the the relationships between the elements of the data uh, a priori, but from your own subject matter expertise, and then sort of, you know, uh, use it and baking that into the model, right? So I think that's that's great if you can do that, you know, now you can actually help it. It'll help you sort of, you know, understand how the model is working. But however, it's really hard, you know, in practice to be able to do that, right? For a designer to come together and actually associate, you know, the, the sort of these sort of, uh, um, you know, put, to, put together these uh, definitions in manual. Because what's happening is, what the reason the reason why explainability is becoming so popular is because of the emergence of deep learning, right? Now, what deep learning has done is, it's basically taken that you know you have all of your all of your data, just throw the data into the model, let the model figure out the feature combination, let the model kind of you know train like you know 
you know which pixels are the most important pixels or which word combinations make come together to make like the say sentiment of a tech piece of text or which features in a structured data sets come, uh, come together to make it more, to to make it like you know let's say a fraud or non fraud so so that in those cases the model is actually deciding those patterns and it's using you know and it is, you know, human is is just basically supplying the input right supplying the data almost like a raw data set uh and and therefore that and and so they, they, there's no sort of you know you're not sort of sitting and designing these the relationships yourself and so this is where you know explainability is becoming more important because you have these deep learning models being developed by users because they're getting very high accuracy and you know then now like as at the cost of you know interpretability and so therefore you 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 want to kind of address that so so that's kind of where we are seeing the usage increased usage of explainability we got more questions coming through in the chat. It looks like people want some swag. We didn't even tell them what it was going to be. I, what if it's such a letdown at the end? We just say, all right, we'll send you a sticker. <laughs> all right, it's not going to be a justice sticker. That is for <laughs> sure. Krishna said it was going to be something cool, and I trust him. Now, Philip's asking, you've been talking a lot about decision trees. Are methods like born-again trees, which aim to approximate models by decision trees, trait? traceable for complex models or and this i guess i'll just tack on a question to this are there certain models or methods that are harder to explain than others yes i mean uh, for example even like if you have a you know hybrid neural network that can take you know multiple types of inputs right like for example let's say you're trying to um let's take that you know credit card uh, fraud example right so you have a credit card fraud example now along with your structured data sets so for example my you know like previous uh, credit card debt and how often i was repaying and what not uh you know you can also take a sequence of you know all of my previous transactions all of my previous you know uh, you know uh, sort of uh, 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 sort of like in in, in sort of a, as a sequence instead of like a structured data set so you can build a hybrid model where certain set of inputs are like more like kind of a tabular data like inputs certain inputs look like you know sequences and so now you can build like lstms or you know you know kind of you know very complex models complex ensembles now now you have this layered ensemble how do you then explain it and and you want maybe explanations at you know different you know piecemeal levels right so this becomes a very hard technical challenge and we are seeing the emergence of these type of models uh, come up and then obviously reinforcement learning which is also kind of you know uh, it's actually where the model is actually all the online model learning model algorithms so the model is actually continuously retraining those are models that are hard to explain in practice and and so th- those are the types of models where we feel like it's it's it's, it's uh, these some of these a uh, lot more sort of uh, research has to happen and and then this like explainability today is like a little hard to apply hmm. um and and so i think the the basic techniques remain the same it's about basically being able to apply them at various different levels and how do you then apply to the to, to get a model that is changing constantly is the, is the is the hard problem and then the other question was um was there another question about that decision question? trees and correct yeah so yeah. i don't i don't know the other type of decision tree that was mentioned so i mean the most popular uh, decision tree like obviously that's in practice is the boosted decision tree for almost all in you know, a structured data sets that people uh, have today uh, bdt has become kind of the state of the art right so it provided it provides really good accuracy and and it's and a lot of people use it um 
And so, uh, and explainability works very well for those, uh, for, for, for booster decision trees. And in fact, uh, Shapley value-based algorithms work really well for booster decision trees in practice. Uh, all right, so here's another one, a, a bit in the weeds, but from Irv asking, how useful are, and this is how, Denengram clustering for data explainability? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, this is probably coming to like, you know, giving like given a data, you know, how, how like kind of, you know, building like a, some sort of hierarchical cl clustering on the data to, to understand the data itself. As I said, you know, data explainability is around, you know, given my data set, you know, what features are important, what feature correlations are, you know, coming through, which features are actually, you know, are sufficient so you can actually prune away some old features and save some costs if it's like, you know, a very high, high uh, like a, a large, like large data set that you have to train or, or you know, like bias related questions, you know, which, uh, which features are coming together to introduce, you know, bias into the model. So all of those things are various different approaches to do it. Um, one approach that we do take with, with Fiddler is to train like an interpretable model on, on, on the existing training data and then exposing these insights through explainability. So that, you know, uh, it's basically, you know, uh, you know, you bring us the data set in fiddlers, you know, models explain, explain the data set by training the model. Again, we are looking through the, we're looking at the data through the model size. And the reason why I think this is actually more effective than maybe a simple, I think, clustering uh, based techniques, which are, because these are, in, in my opinion, at least this is actually kind of modeling the problem that you're trying to solve, right? And if in case, if I'm actually trying to uh, come up with like a churn prediction problem. And I want to know what are the features that are important. So I know what are the features that are not important by building a first pass model that actually imp tries to predict churn uh, with reasonable accuracy. You can then understand how the, you know, what features of variables are important, what features are not important, how oh, different nice. features are com coming together to influence the prediction and how the model, how the, uh, how, how is like the data distributed across different seg segments of population, how the features are distributed and whatnot. So that's kind of what we found uh, more effective in practice than, you know, going down the more unsupervised way of analyzing, which, are, which I think is also useful, but I think we found this is actually much more, much more effective. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. So I'm gonna take one real fast and I'd love to talk about the challenges that you see right now with explainability? Is it the what we touched on before, how there are some models and there are some methods that are really difficult to explain? Or are there other things that come jump out at you? Yeah, so I think there are, first of all, uh, there's obviously explain, there are multiple challenges. One is um, uh, explaining complex machine learning models is, is a challenge. The other big challenge from a practical standpoint, and this is something that we uh, we, we, we sort of uh, sort of working on at Fiddler and, and kind of you know I've solved quite a bit is building a general purpose explainable explainability platform is really hard, right? Because today, unfortunately, models come in all forms or shapes, all kinds of formats. You know, different formats don't agree with each other. You know, TensorFlow, PyTorch, Scikit-Learn, XGBoost. You know and you have all the old school formats like R, SAS and all. How do you take all of these models and then build a general purpose explainability platform uh, from a tech technology point of view, it's hard because you know ingesting the model and running the model and actually inferring the model uh, and, and, and different APIs in the model. So one of the things that we were excited about was this whole open neural net exchange project that came up came, came like a few years ago, which was trying to standardize model formats. Uh, I think it was started by Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon as a consortium. And so when we, if we have such platforms in the future, it's almost like a Java bytecode 
for models, right? So if you actually have like a, you know, when standard format for, for models, then it would, would help, you know, for, you know, in the future for, for a lot of data science teams to have like a, you know, a, a general purpose explainability thing. So that's, that's number two. Number three is obviously we talked about the, the sort of, uh, the, you know, the evaluation methods, right? So how do you evaluate explainability? How, how good it, how good is one explainability algorithm or the other explainability algorithm? That's still, you know, a topic of, you know, research and, and sort of uh, people are, you know, looking into it. So th those would be the kind of the three things that I would say. Uh, so there's a few more that are coming through here in the chat. Is explainability only for humans? For example, machine learning predictions can bypass physics itself. Like this model, which predicts planet positions directly from data without Newton's laws. Is humanity losing something here when gaining something else? And are we only trying to help us feel we understand how the model works? That is a yeah, great it's a very, question. Very interesting a question. That's a very deep one. <laughs> So I, you know, I'm not taught about it that much, but I think, you know, um, there is always a human in the loop with machine learning, right? I mean, we have not gotten to a state where uh, systems are completely automated end to end where, you know, the systems are auto learning from their mistakes. Um, so even there, I believe that, you know, once you have, you know, like, once you have this flywheel where you have a, you have, you have a model that is trained, and you have a model that is deployed and it's now, you know, being monitored. Now, if you can actually, you know, automatically retrain the model, kind of, you know, sort of, you know, keep it like an almost like a cruise control, right? Where, you know, it's it's essentially, it's just on its own and, and, you, and, and the system is retraining better versions of the model. And even there to come from like the old model to the new model, it requires insights, right? You know, how do I, you know, let's say if the model, you know, you may want to retrain the model because the model is drifting in performance or it's throwing a lot more false positives or whatever reasons. And from there, uh, from that snapshot of like model M0 to like go to M1, you know, you need, you need like explainability, you know, whether the machine is consuming, in this case, the machine is probably consuming the insights and saying, okay, I, uh, these are all the segments of data where it, the model is not working well. And maybe there's like a workflow where I magically get like some synthetic training data sets, right? So, uh, 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 and, and sort of automatically retrain the model. Uh, but I believe that in, at, um, before we go there, we'll, there will always be human in the loop because at least, you know, we want to see like, you know, which were false positives and then you can go and, you know, sort of, you know, human goes and looks into it and, and there is like, uh, and they, they would, they could, they, they would then go and like, see how they can actually retrain a better model for, for putting into production. So, but yeah, I think whether the human is in the loop or not in the loop, you still need the insight because ultimately explainability is to, is to find bugs or performance or problems within the model, right? Or explain the model and also find issues within the model so you can actually make it better. That's the that's the whole point of it at the end of the day. Well, I, I wanna dive into the idea that you presented earlier before this question and shout out to Ron on that question. That was, that was one I did not see coming. So the idea of the difficulties that you were talking about and the challenges and how to make a tool that is able to span the whole spectrum right now, because there are so many different use cases and there are so many different models and frameworks and right. deployments and all of that. How do you aim to conquer that uh, right. as 
a company like yeah that's the challenge that we set up set ourselves right like you know when we started the company we wanted to build a general purpose explainable ai platform which meant that we should be able to digest you know multiple types of models and then be able to explain them so so far we have gone you know quite far you know we can actually you know digest you know tensorflow pytorch scikit-learn xgboost type of models you know pretty quickly and now we are adding support for mlflow spark you know and then you know other type h2o type of models uh, one of the things that has really helped us is the container technology maturity i think you know people have now moving towards more and more kind of dockerizing their models so uh, and so that uh, ability to kind of have a docker being one level of abstraction so you so instead of you know we looking at the model artifacts we can be looking at you know dockerized containers with a standard api that is implemented so then essentially we can standardize our explainability algorithms to just work on that api so as long as you can actually give us in if we can pass inputs and you can give us inputs uh, it can we can send us outputs then we can basically uh, explain that model today right so so those are the things uh, it's still you know a lot of work needs to be done here as i said for 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 like applying complex explainability algorithms like integrated gradients you need much more access to the model you know for example the gradient vectors of the outermost layer and what not in which case you know uh, you 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 would need like the model artifact uh, right so in in that in that case you know being able to take the model artifact and run it and 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 then run it across you know different versions of tensorflow and whatnot is a huge challenge so we kind of you know have built uh, the system to scale for that it's it's a hard problem to solve and you know you know come very far from where we were 2 years ago but still like you know, some a lot of way to go nice pytorch is that right pytorch 2 yeah we have a partnership with facebook ai uh, so there's uh, we you know facebook has this um, library called captum uh it's it's pretty neat library to explain pytorch models so fiddler uses captum as as, as, as internally to kind of you know explain pytorch models so yeah oh, you can nice. use fiddler for pytorch yeah i would hope so considering <laughs> your background correct yeah we have, have a you know good PyTorch. partnership with facebook ai research and we, you know we're working towards you know kind of evangelizing fiddler and All right. pytorch community it has come to the point where we need to choose these swag winners Krishna and I are going to look through and we're going to tell each other in the chat who we think <laughs> should win the swag for everyone that is here with us. I really want to thank you for these incredible questions. This was awesome. This has been super insightful and I love hearing how you all are looking at things uh and what is important to you really like and judging by the quality and caliber of questions that came through it seems like this is front of mind for a lot of people which is reassuring to me because i like to talk about how important monitoring is all the time but sometimes i wonder if anybody is actually listening and it seems like there are people that are out there listening and the explainability part of this krishna has been really useful to dive into what exactly it is because it is a buzzword being thrown around it's a buzzword within a buzzword of ml ops and so sometimes you have to really sift through a lot in order to get there and figure out what it means and what it actually does and why it's useful so let's see krishna should i leave it to you or are you going to let me no, choose no please do please do the honors you know uh, you, yeah, you you please select you know the, the people i that... think we got to go with ron's man he quoted an article and everything he did some that was some serious stuff that happened for ron and then i really liked 
the question from um i i did like the question from Depeche also about how to navigate politics and i thought your answer was especially good because this is where explainability can shine so maybe we can give it to ron and Depeche and everyone else thank you again we're going to be giving away more fiddler swag don't worry especially <laughs> as much swag as they let me i'm going to give it all away <laughs> <laughs> but for Ron and Depeche, please reach out to me or reach out to Krishna in the Slack and we will send you the swag bag. And thanks again, Krishna, for doing this, man. This is super insightful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Demetrius. Yeah, thank And it was great, uh, you know, great sort of questions. Thanks to the audience for joining in. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you all. We will see you later. See you next time. And if you want to follow up the conversation with Krishna, he's in this Slack. So ask away, ask any questions. We also have an explainability AI Slack channel. So for right. more of these questions and more of the news that's on this, jump in that Slack channel that is in our Slack workspace because that is a happening place. It's where all the cool kids are. Correct. <laughs> Yep, right. absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, have a nice day, everyone. Bye-bye. See you, everyone.